0: All right, with that said, let me, let me tell you where we're headed for the rest of this school year in the sermon series. We're starting today a series of eight sermons on the Beatitudes. We're going to interrupt that for Palm Sunday and Easter, so we'll, we'll get a couple weeks before that, and then we'll finish it after Easter. And our goal there, as Hojan just prayed, is that we'll understand what it is to be blessed by God and how to be blessed by God. Then after that, um, we're going to finish out the school year with a series of sermons on our new church mission and vision. You guys have been hearing about this Vitality Pathway for the last 18 months and, and there have been lots of inputs. There have been workshops. You took the Pulse survey so that we could see how we're doing on those 10 markers of healthy missional churches. All of that is coming together over the next few months so that after we finish the Beatitude series, we're anticipating, introducing, and exploring, and then figuring out how do we live out the mission and vision that God gives us. Now, we don't know what it is yet, so be praying for this next couple months as the pieces are coming together so that we get there, so that we really do discern, so that when we get there, we know that we know that we know that Jesus is saying we're supposed to do this. Because if we know Jesus is calling us to a specific mission and vision, we have no excuse for not doing it. We will do our best to then fulfill it. All right, the Beatitudes. There are eight statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that talk about who is blessed in the world, truly blessed by God. Actually, they're, they're statements that describe who is blessed by God, but they are also invitations for every one of us to become the kind of people who are blessed by God. Um, but before we dive into the first beatitude this morning, I want to back up a little bit and, and share some thoughts about the Sermon on the Mount in general. Sermon on the Mount has been called the greatest sermon ever preached. And, and scholars and theologians across the centuries have commented about how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount seems to lay out a comprehensive picture of what his followers are supposed to be like and the mission that they're supposed to accomplish in the world. And so, um, so one person wrote, The Sermon on the Mount is quite simply the most celebrated teaching by Jesus of Nazareth. It's widely considered to be the heart of Jesus' teaching, and its influence runs through the centuries like a majestic river. I don't think we can really understand Jesus' heart for us to be transformed and Jesus' mission for us to fulfill in the world. I don't think we can really understand that until we have immersed in and wrestled with the sermon on the Mount. I think it is that significant. As a matter of fact, it's so significant that anybody who's anybody in Christian history has worked their way through the Sermon on the Mount and had to deal with how it convicts us and how it compels us. And 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 so we're talking about and you can look up and read what they say. Chrysostom, Augustine, Dante, Chaucer, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Spurgeon, Bonhoeffer, D. Martin, Lloyd Jones. Howard Yoder, Was, John Stott, D.A. Carson. From the time of Christ to today, anybody who's been serious about understanding what Jesus is trying to do in the world has wrestled with the Sermon on the Mount. So I hope that you will come to the same conclusion that I have come to, that this is a critical scripture to come to understand for us to be transformed, to be faithful to Jesus. And isn't it interesting Even people who are not followers of Jesus can quote to us the Sermon on the Mount. Even unbelievers know intuitively that this is the standard that Jesus sets apart for his followers. Okay, so here's how the Sermon on the Mount begins. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, Jesus, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And then for Matthews 5, 6, and 7, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. The very first word, we'll go on to the next slide, very first um, sentence of the Sermon on the Mount. In this translation, just 13 words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, it would not be too difficult for us all to memorize the eight Beatitudes during this sermon series over these we'll have we'll finish in about 10 weeks it would not be that hard 13 words the first beatitude blessed are the poor in spirit for they will receive the kingdom of heaven now at the risk of annoying the other pastors who are going to preach on other beatitudes and the guest speaker that's going to come and speak i'm going to say this the first beatitude is the most foundational of all of the Beatitudes, and of the entire Sermon on the Mount. All the Beatitudes matter. All of them are important. But every other Beatitude is built on this foundation of blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Um, So I want to show you today, what's it mean to be poor in spirit? Then I want to give you a word that I came across this week that I think is the opposite of being poor in spirit. And then I want to leave you with a spiritual law that is as sure as the law of gravity. So first of all, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Most of you have probably heard um, a proverb. It's actually Proverbs 16, 18, that goes like this. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. All right? That's a common proverb. It's it's so common that, that lots of people don't even know it's in the Bible. Pride goes before a fall, or before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. The very next verse after that well-known proverb is what Jesus is reiterating in the first beatitude. Proverbs 16, 19 says, better to be lowly in spirit and even among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. I want you to hear that contrast. Better to even be among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Proverbs 29 says, A person's pride brings them low, but a person of lowly spirit gains honor. And then just one more, Isaiah brings it into clearer focus. Isaiah 66, Thus declares the Lord, The ones I esteem are those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. In this first beatitude, Jesus uses a very strong word that we translate as the poor. This is not a word that just talks about somebody who's kind of needy. It's not even a word for just people who don't have a lot of money. Jesus found actually the strongest Greek word that he could find to describe the poor. And what the word actually refers to is destitute beggars. The word poor, where that word is translated in other um, Greek literature, it's translated as beggars. To be poor in spirit means to be beggars before God. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that we don't have anything to bring God on our own. That we can somehow earn God's favor or demand God's blessings. To be beggars in spirit is to have a complete absence of pride. It is to see ourselves before God as really worthy of nothing on our own except what God gives us to make us into what he wants us to be. To be beggars in spirits is to recognize we are spiritually bankrupt before God. Thomas Watson, who is a great Puritan preacher, said, Those who know their own Beggary are the poor in spirit. It is those who, seeing no goodness in themselves, despair in themselves and run fully to the mercy of God in Christ. The very first beatitude, the very first sentence of the greatest sermon ever preached Jesus is announcing a spiritual fact that only spiritual beggars will inherit the blessings of the kingdom of God. Which means that when I understand what Jesus says correctly, I'm confronted with a question. Am I a spiritual beggar before God? I got to tell you, it doesn't feel good. I don't want to be a beggar. I want to show up with something to offer. I've spent my whole life trying to be a success so that I would have something to contribute And then to hear Jesus say that I have to become a spiritual beggar in order to know know the blessings of God somehow offends my pride. But the point is this. Proud people don't receive the blessings of the kingdom. God does not applaud those who believe they deserve it. Instead, God applauds those who know they don't deserve his blessings. So... In the Gospels, we come across the rich young ruler, too proud to humble himself. He did not receive the blessings of the kingdom. Then we come across a Pharisee in the temple praying, and the Pharisee prays and says, Thank you, God, that I'm not like that other sinner guy over there. He never will receive, or never did receive, the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about a whole bunch of people who are going to show up on the judgment day and say, Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do great things for you? And Jesus says that they will be sorely disappointed because they were not spiritual beggars. They could not receive the blessings of God. So this week, try to figure out what's the opposite. Of being poor in spirit. And I came across a word that I think kind of gets it. At least it caught it for me. And here it is The opposite of being poor in spirit is being entitled. To be entitled is to believe that I deserve some kind of special treatment or special privilege. To be entitled means that I believe that I have a right to be treated a certain way. To be entitled means that if I don't get what I want, I am going to loudly complain, and I am going to grumble, and I'm going to whine, and usually I'm going to blame other people because of it. So a couple of images for sort of what entitled looks like. Sort of looks like this, and just not to be gender specific, it also looks like this. All right, another one? Take a look at that one, right? (laughs) And then there's this one. Anybody know who this is? This is Talia Jane. She was fired from Yelp um, this last month. She posted a 2,000-word open letter naming the CEO of Yelp and blaming him for her not being paid enough to be able to live in L.A. (laughs) She was fired two hours after she posted that letter online. Um, She's not really helped the cause of millennials, because if you read much at all, you know that millennials are regularly berated as being a generation that thinks they're entitled. So there's a Time Magazine um, article um, not quite a year ago talked about millennials and how millennials have received trophies their whole lives just for showing up. So that somehow they think that they're supposed to get jobs and get promotions and get raises and salaries just because they showed up. But here's what I want you to know. This whole thing of entitlement is not a millennial thing. This is every generation and every person who thinks they've got something to stand on. This whole thing, I I, I came across a couple um, cartoons this last week of these older people receiving... Social Security and Medicaid complaining about millennials being too entitled. All right? Entitlement goes back all the way to creation to the Garden of Eden, where Satan tempted Eve and said, Eve, you are entitled to be equal to God. Entitlement is every single one of us when we refuse to see that we are spiritual beggars before God. So then I started thinking. what does entitlement look like versus poverty of spirit? And I looked around this last week, and, um, and I, was, I was actually at the Flower Bakery at the Back Bay Station, and I thought, yeah, i got to just pay attention to entitlement versus poverty of spirit. And so as I left the, the bakery, I walked across the, the crosswalk, and, um, and I got you know halfway across the street, and this car that seemed to be very annoyed that I made him slow down came alongside me and laid on the horn. And I thought, that's what entitlement looks like. <laughs> entitlement always honks the horn when it doesn't get exactly what it wants. And then I realized spiritual poverty would be to slow down and let people cross. Even if they're not in a crosswalk. And even if I'm in a hurry. And in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, Danny mentioned this one. And I saw it a couple times this week. Um, um, entitlement... When, when you're driving down the road and somebody wants to break in from a side road, entitlement speeds up so they don't get in front of you. Poverty of spirit slows down and lets people in. In so many ways, poverty of spirit slows down and lets people in. I watched the Republican um, debate this last week. Anybody watch it? Okay, all like nine of us. You didn't miss anything? What we watched was this, this competition of entitlement between the people on the stage. Entitlement gets annoyed in Boston when there are too many people on the tee. You know how it gets all crowded? Poverty of spirit, I realized on the crowded tee this week, poverty of spirit sees that as an opportunity to pray for more people to be blessed by Jesus. Entitlement, this didn't happen this week, but I thought of it, Entitlement insists that my wife agree to my superiority in arguments. <laughs> <laughs> Want the microphone, Marla? <laughs> it's always wonderful when Marla goes, "Huh." <laughs> Entitlement insists that my wife agree to my superiority when we argue. Poverty of spirit, we ask each other, and we ask those who disagree with us, what they're thinking and feeling because maybe we have something to learn from them. Entitlement demands that God meets my expectations. And when he doesn't, then we just ignore him. Entitlement, when it comes across a scripture like this, that, that really humbles us, entitlement says, no, nah, I'm not going there. Whereas poverty of spirit adapts our lives to the things that God wants to do. Entitlement demands what it deserves. Poverty of spirit knows it deserves nothing. Here's the neat thing. When you, don't know, when you know that you don't deserve anything, you're free and you can rejoice in everything. If you think you're entitled, you have to keep wrestling with everybody else on the face of the earth who also thinks they're entitled. So entitlement grumbles. Poverty of spirit expresses gladness. Entitlement competes. Poverty of spirits considers others better than themselves and is content and calm. Entitlement blames. Poverty of spirit blesses. Entitlement brags. Poverty of spirit begs. So here's what I think poverty of spirit looks like. That's Pope Francis. And if you just Google, you know, washing feet, you come up with hundreds of images of the guy that probably has more status in any Christian church on the face of the earth. Humbly washing. And so, so many of the pictures of him are not just washing people's feet, but kissing the feet of of deformed children. And um, I think that's what poverty of spirit starts to look like. So I want to leave you with a spiritual law that, as I said before, is just as true as the physical law of gravity. And it is this. We cannot be filled with God's blessings until we're emptied of ourselves. I think that's part of the point of this beatitude. We can't be filled by God's blessings until we are empty of ourselves. Spiritual beggars are the ones who are blessed by God precisely because they're not so full of themselves that they have no room for God's blessings. To the extent that we think we deserve God's blessings, we don't have room for God's blessings. So a couple of, a couple of great preachers on this text. This is Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of the last millennium. He said the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. When a person sees himself or herself as nothing, out of this nothing, God makes a most beautiful Creation. It is God's method to make a person poor in spirit and then fill that person with the graces of the spirit. While we are full of self-sufficiency, we are not fit for Christ. And then I like this, um, Thomas Watson was a, a Puritan preacher. I like this turn of phrase. He says, if the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. Got to empty the pebbles if we're going to receive the gold of God's blessings. And Martin Luther, this is what he says. He says, because we are willing to be poor, we have a beautiful, glorious, great, and eternal possession in heaven. Listen to this. We give up a crumb to receive a crown. We give up a crumb to receive a crown. All right, this spiritual law, that we have to be emptied of ourselves before we can be filled by the blessings of God, it applies both to our salvation and to our formation. So let me talk to those of you who, who may not yet have stepped over the line of faith in Christ. And here's what this beatitude says to you. It invites you to come before Jesus. And to quit trying to prove yourself to Jesus. Or quit trying to earn something with Jesus. And just to come to Jesus the way you are. Interesting thing happens when we come to Jesus the way we are and not with our our attempts to somehow deserve him. Interesting thing happens when we come to Jesus the way we are. We find out that he accepts and loves us. Not for what we do, not for how spiritual we can be, not for how good a people we can be, but Jesus accepts and loves us for simply because of who we are. So I want to invite you. If you've not stepped over the line of faith... All you need to do is come to Jesus in a simple prayer. Something like, Jesus, I want to come to you and know you. I want to empty out the sins of my life. Because we've all sinned. Um, Romans says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are things we've done that we should not have done. And there are things we should have done that we did not do. And so simple prayer. Jesus, I come to you knowing that I have sinned. Would you forgive me? Would you help me to empty myself so that you can come into my life and lead me? That's all it takes to step over a line of faith. On one side, Jesus is still somebody out there somewhere. On the other side, Jesus becomes savior and friend, and the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life and fills you with his graces and his blessings if you've not, if you'd not stepped over that line of faith, there's no better day to do that ever than the day that we are in at this moment. And so when we get ready for communion, I'm going to encourage you to simply say that kind of prayer to Jesus. And then before you leave, and when you come to communion, come up and receive. But before you leave, tell at least one other person that you prayed a prayer to be emptied of yourself so that Jesus could fill you so that we can rejoice with you. All right. But this spiritual law doesn't apply just to our salvation. It also applies to our formation. And in the same way, many of us are too full of too many things to have any more space for God's blessings in our lives. We have too many relationships we're trying to manage. We have too many competing desires. We have too many goals that we're trying to achieve. We have too many people we're trying to please. And as long as we are filled up to here with ourselves, there's no room for God to give us his blessings. And you know that that's true? Because when you can't handle life, usually the first thing that goes is your abiding walk with God. Spiritual life leaves first. And I want to encourage you, this spiritual truth that we have to be empty in order to be filled applies to our transformation. That... We probably, many of us, and probably in all of our lives at some point, we need to take an inventory. And we need to start emptying stuff that's blocking the blessings of God. First thing we empty, of course, we get rid of sin. But we know that. But Hebrews 12 says that we don't just get rid of sin that easily entangles us, but we also get rid of everything else that hinders What in your life is hindering you? What entitlement? What commitment? What is sucking up your life energy so that you cannot receive the blessings of God? And so when we come to preparation for communion in just a moment, I want to encourage you to ask Jesus to help you figure out what is filling you too much to receive blessings from him. Because here's the thing. When we become poor in spirit, God can pour his spirit more and more fully into our lives. And then we start to live in the blessings of the kingdom of God. And we'll talk more about um, what those blessings look like um, as we get further.